um, my first uh, my first time I've ever been to Taiping. The last time I was in Malaysia was 35 years ago. So the world has changed and I've changed. <laughs> so it's very much the uh, first time experience. You know? <laughs> So, fortunately, the beauty of the Buddha's teaching is it doesn't really matter what time, what place you're in, because it's, it's always applicable. The Buddha called it akaliko, timeless, doesn't really matter where you are, it doesn't change over the centuries, it's still relevant. Yeah. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, you know, the, way, the way of the Dhamma. Remember the phrase that we use with the Dhamma, the recollection of it, Santitiko, Akaliko, Ehipasiko, Opanaiko, Pachatang, Vedidapo, Vinyuhi. Which, if you're not in, that clear about Pali, is a very, very powerful summary, a very meaningful summary. Santitiko means it's directly visible, accessible. You don't have to go through an intermediary. You can know it for yourself, you can experience it for yourself, you can see it clearly. This is a time when of course in the uh, earlier Indian spirituality, the Brahmins, you had to go through a Brahmin priest to get the understanding of what was going on. You'd look at the various um, omens or portents, you know, or esoteric teachings only for Brahmins, only for priests or special initiated people, but the Buddha's Dharma is free and open, Santitiko, it's accessible. Akaliko, timeless. Ihipasiko means it says, come and have a look. It really encourages you to inquire into your own life and into what the Buddha says. Does this make sense to you? Is this the way it is? Come and see. I'm not going to be talking about something that's purely a matter of theory or irrelevant. I'm talking about something that happens to you. I'm talking about birth. I'm talking about death. I'm talking about stress and suffering. I'm talking about joy and happiness. I'm talking about what we really want in our lives. I'm talking about morality, ethics, how we behave, how we're going to bring, how we live harmoniously together. I'm talking about these things. They're, they ask you, hey, this is, this is about you. This isn't some kind of, you know, religious club for a few people. This is what happens to everybody. And I can, <clears throat> there's something that encourages you to look into it rather than just feel resigned to it or who cares or who knows anyway. Say, so look into the stuff of your life. Look into these teachings and see how they, how they relate to it. <clears throat> Opanayako means it's furthering. As you, as you look into it, it takes you in. It says, hey, look, this is because of that. And you say, yeah, that's true. I didn't see that before. So you start to see how it works. And as you see how it works, you've got more interested and you see subtler things. You see how you get upset. And you see how you cling to fantasies that aren't really there. And you see how you can let go of them. You see when you do, you feel a lot better. <laughs> you realize it in yourself through your own experience 
Vedidapovinuhi means it's visible, it's seeable, it's experienceable through, through the wise, through discernment. This doesn't mean if you say through wise people, you think, oh, well, it's other people. <laughs> it doesn't mean wise people with some kind of select group of sages. It means it refers to your innate wisdom faculty. You're a wise person, you can be a wise person if you want to be. <laughs> Wisdom is, uh, in a simplest sense, wisdom is the ability to discern, to differentiate, to notice the differences between this and that. And Buddhist wisdom is really based upon the wisdom to know the differences. And we start to know the differences between short-term results and long-term effects. So we can we start to look at that more clearly, say, well, this, you know, having fun could be fun in the short term, the long term, maybe it's not so much fun, you know. So when people don't really understand the difference between short term and long term, people get drunk because it's fun, people do kind of crazy things because it's fun, you get what you can while you can, and you don't recognize, or the people don't recognize it in the long term, it ruins them. Why do people you know, when we recognize the Buddha's teachings about suffering and how we create it, why do, we, why do we create suffering for ourselves? Why do we create stress for ourselves? Because we don't use wisdom, because we don't see, hey, you don't need to do that. If you, did, if you let go of that, you feel a lot better. This is wisdom, recognizing the differences between short-term happiness and long-term contentment, peace short-term gains and between long-term sense of achievement and contentment and uh, long short and also to understand the difference between that which causes you suffering and that which gets you out of it so for this reason we use wisdom and wisdom is something to be developed we're all born with an innate capacity for wisdom wisdom and consciousness are said to be conjoined if you're a human being, you already have the ability to differentiate between pleasure and pain. But you need to develop that a lot more so you can differentiate between the causes of suffering, causes that will in the long term bring you suffering and stress, and the causes that will bring you out of it. Happiness, clarity, freedom from guilt, freedom from worry. Yeah? And for this purpose, we develop a lot of introspection, mindfulness, witnessing, watching our thoughts, watching our minds, watching our emotions, watching how life actually works. So, in this way, Buddhism is not a theory, it's not a philosophy, it's really a way of living. A way of living wisely, living fully, developing your full potential. So when the Buddha himself went forth, it was in order that he was faced with the challenge of aging, sickness, death and the aging of sickness and death of everyone he knew around him who he loved and held dearly he said, is, must, is there any way out of this? Is there any way we can get out of this? Is there a resolution to this? So, he developed this Dhamma and he said after a search and a practice of many years uh, the deathless has been found. The deathless has been found. I can now teach the path to the deathless. 
Now, as you probably <laughs> recognise and can meet comedically challenged, say, well, the Buddha died, didn't he? You know, we found the path of death. I said, what was his? What about his death? What about his parinibbana? What about lying under a bodhi under the tree with his terrible infectious dysentery, lying there in pain and body breaking up and dying? Doesn't seem to have found the path of deathless. But if you really look into the way the Buddha understood it and talked about it, he said, well, yeah, the body dies, but that's all. It's only that which dies. He recognizes something else that the mind can open up to, the mind can descend to, the mind can arrive at, whereby there isn't a fear, there isn't a degeneration, there's the breaking up. So that when the body breaks up, the mind, the heart is liberated, experiences liberation. And even this very life, that experience of liberation from the anxiety, the fears, the worries that cause us suffering in the here and now. So this is what he's talking about. It's not a philosophy, it's not a set of nice ideas, but it is a, a practice. So that's what we often call, you know, we talk about Buddhism, we say the practice of Dhamma. You practice it. You practice it, the Eightfold Path, you practice it, meditation, you practice it with sila, you practice it with right livelihood, you practice it with right speech. But uh, when we come together like this, we generally begin the evening with some meditation because in a way this is the place, or meditation is, is the time when you can look most clearly into the heart, into what's happening, develop in an undisturbed way the strengths, the discernment, the attentiveness that's needed to develop wisdom intimately in yourself, in your own life as it's happening. Because when you sit quietly, there's all kinds of things you don't have to be bothering with, so your mind can bring its full resources onto your experience in the here and now. As you know, meditation experience is nothing that, seemingly nothing that dramatic. We're not whizzing out into the sky, we're not going off the other side of the cosmos, we're not visiting the devatas, probably, well maybe some of you are. We're just sitting here feeling our breath, feeling our body, feeling hot, feeling itches, twitches, flushes, feelings, and we think, what's the big deal about all this? <laughs> what did I come here for just to do this for half an hour? What's the point of all this? <laughs> well, the point of all this is a very mild experience, very gentle. Nobody I know has ever died through meditating yet. It's not a kind of edge of your seat experience. But it's showing you certain things about feeling, about the way the mind operates. It's, it's helping you to develop steady attention and you're starting to notice certain strong characteristics now if we just uh, whenever we sit quietly without being engaged in anything for a few moments you'll notice there's a moment where your mind kind of steps back and it seems quite open and uh-huh And then after a few seconds, 
the thought starts trickling through something you forgot to do oh, oh I must remember that something as you think of it you get a little plan starts building up what you're going to do uh, maybe it gets exciting maybe you feel some worry suddenly you feel anxiety because you don't know whether you're going to do it right feel some anxiety around that so you you try to think of a way to really make that future that project clear make it really going to work so you start thinking a lot about who to ask how to go about it when it's going to happen and you start to feel a sense of fear because you can't rely on that person and you never know that might break down and after all it's like that so you suddenly feel anxiety some fear some worry you oh what am I going to get out of this oh maybe then you start to think something else you can do instead well never mind oh no I'll just go and have something to eat instead yeah. or one of those people you, that comes up in your thought you start to think you know so and so he's really like this he's really like that he's always stubborn and obstinate yeah. not like me you know so you start to develop views and opinions about other people or you start to develop views and opinions about yourself think well I don't know if I can really do this you know I mean it did you know I'm not the kind of person who really makes it in those in doing that so in this course of like a few minutes you've developed a, a, a three-dimensional world of people yourself the future and it's full of uncertainties worries plans grudges maybe a bit of jealousy here and there <laughs> this whole where does it come from <laughs> Do you realize how out of control your inner life is? And this inner life is actually pushing you along to make decisions. Your inner life is leading you along, and yet it's out of control. It's arising unbidden, it's not going, it's just come welling up. You didn't decide to do it, it just starts happening to you. It's full of uncertainties, there's kind of hungers and interests that you think you might get you get excited about things that might go wrong you feel a bit worried about uncertainties about yourself this whole world this is what the Buddha meant by the world and he's saying this path out of suffering takes you to the end of the world you won't get out of suffering until you get to the end of the world you don't get to the end of the world on a jumbo jet you get to the end of the world by getting to the end of this flooding process of thoughts and emotions finding the place where it stops knowing the place where it stops and not getting it started so this was a lot of his teaching was just really about this because this is what you know when you've got millions of people all running their own worlds everybody's got their own little world happening and there's seven billion people with seven billion different worlds operating there's going to be some conflict isn't there <laughs> and some misunderstandings because yeah. I want you to be in my world I want you to and you know I want you to be the person who supports my world my reality 
I want you to be sympathetic, caring, punctual, on time, interested, supportive, generous, kind, so you'll make my world operate better. And you think, yeah, but you think, yeah, okay, but I want somebody else to do that for me. (laughs) So then we start to feel disappointed in each other. But really the responsibility is to get to the end of our own worlds, and this is something you can do in meditation. There are particular, uh, the way the Buddha helped us was to say you can actually look at this flowing experience under four headings. There's many ways you can look at this actually, but tonight we'll just talk under, describe it under four particular headings. Yeah, because this is a, four is a nice number, not too many. And it, it does refer to particular theme, particular aspects of the world, particular territories. One of them is the territory of the senses. This is called karma. Not kamma, which means cause and effect, but karma. And karma is this, um, sometimes pictured as a sort of a god or a deity. Because karma is this magical influence that keeps saying the sense, sense contact will do you good, it will make you happy. Now, how long have you been alive? You all look like you're definitely out of the cradle. You probably had quite a lot of sights, sounds, touches, smells, things to hear, and forth. Have they made you happy? Are you blissed out? Are you contented? Do you feel you've had enough now? You've finally found your sense contact, sensory impressions are just all flowing along really, really sweetly and there's no irritation, no displeasure, nothing uncomfortable, no letdowns. Will everybody tell the truth? (laughs) Well, I don't think it's just me saying, I'm definitely very disappointed with the sensory world. When I was a little boy, about five years old, I thought, um, if I could get a water pistol, that would be contentment. If I just got this water pistol, I'd be just happy. That would be it. There's nothing more in life you can have. It's any better than a water pistol. This is the consummation. I never want anything else after I got the water pistol. So I got my pocket money, saved up, and went down to the local store and bought a water pistol. I think I was probably happy with that for 20 minutes. Squirt, 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 squirt. <laughs> well, maybe not a water spirit, it's a scooter I need, or a pair of roller skates. Yeah. So it goes on. As you get bigger, your toys get bigger. Motorbike. Yeah. Yeah. Girlfriend. Holidays, nice food, nice drink. Let me down. It just you get this moment when it bursts, kind of happy burst of it, and it just sort of fades away. And then you want another one. <laughs> Isn't that the way it is? Isn't that what it's like? And that when you've um, 
found, like, you know, you, you're hot and sweaty and hungry. You came in, you took a shower, took a bath. Oh, the relief. And you had something to eat. Oh, the relief. And then after a while, that becomes, well, now what? Let's switch on the radio. So notice that even when you get something that's agreeable, the, quality, the, the, the time when it's agreeable doesn't last. So then you've got to lift, get new pleasure on top of it. Not because the, the eating the food was unpleasant, or having a bath was unpleasant, it was pleasant. But the degree of pleasurability has sort of you've got to add something else to it. So the pleasant becomes the normal, and then we want a bit more. Is it like this? Investigate. Look into it. And don't be, de don't be depressed, because uh, at the end of the day, I'll tell you there's, some, there's, there's other things you can get that will make you happy. <laughs> but just ch check it out, right? So the problem is, of course, that for a lot of the time, people are educated or taught through the television, through advertisements, that this is, the, this is all there is. This is the primary way to make yourself feel good. Yeah. You get a new gadget and you'll feel good. You notice everyone in the, in the advertisements looks happy. You know, somebody's cleaning their teeth, they look happy. Somebody's buying a packet of soap powder, they look ecstatic. <laughs> and all these people look happy and they all look beautiful. And they're generally quite young. You don't see old, ugly, miserable people on advertisements, do you? <laughs> it's always happy, beautiful, young people on advertisements. And yet, how many people are happy, young and beautiful all the time? So you see, this message keeps getting printed on, the, on your emotions, that this is the way to feel happy and young and beautiful and good and vital and life's alive. No, actually the sense world is something that we have to live with. Sights, sounds, touches, and naturally we want to avoid discomfort. That's avoid sickness, avoid pain. This is quite fair and legitimate. But the, we want that you can separate that from this myth that the God karma presents to you. You say, well, just enough is okay. You know, I'm not expecting to be satisfied, but just enough is okay. Just some clothes, it's okay. Enough to eat, it's okay. You know, place to live, shelter, it's okay. It's enough. That's all you expect. You don't expect it to be more than that. Yeah. And believe it or not, this is what's called renunciation. Renunciation isn't hair shirts and lying on beds of nails, or standing on one leg for 20 years. Renunciation is just knowing the difference between what you need and what you want. <laughs> and aiming just for what you need, because you recognize you, can, you fill up your happiness with something else. And generally, the advice of the Buddha in filling up your happiness is develop generosity develop sensitivity, develop 
morality, develop kindness, develop calm, develop deep calm in your mind. This is going to make you happy and it's free. And you don't have to be young and beautiful to do it. <laughs> so when you get that sense of happiness, then these other things, you really, you don't have to lean on the sense well. Karmasaval, karmoga, flood of sensuality. Takes a little bit of wisdom to see through it, but after 25 years or so of sense, you should know better by now. <laughs> and of course, the, the important thing to recognize is, is you can feel happy. It's not to say, well, you're not going to, you can't feel happy in the sense that so life is miserable. To say, no, 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 it's not miserable. Life can be very joyful. But you're not going to get it through that. You can get it through generosity, through meditation, through contentment, through looking after each other, through love and kindness. This can do you a lot better. Actually, the sense world, you know, isn't really too much of a problem. I'm sure most of us learn to live with a sense of moderation after a few mistakes, probably. <laughs> the next one of these great floods or corruptions is called bhava. And that, that uh, I use the Pali word because the English word is rather enigmatic. It means becoming. This is one that's really quite difficult to see through. Becoming means it's to do with the sense of time and the sense of identity. So becoming has always got a sense of you're about to be or you will be or you could be or you should be. Yeah? And as you, you're sitting quietly without focusing on anything particular, you pretty soon find something you should be or you could be. Or wouldn't it be nice to be? Or something you fear that you might be going to die. I might be rejected. I might be kicked out of my job. I might go mad. I might get cancer. So this sense of something that you will be or might be or dread, fear that you might not be. And it carries along this uh, train of, of emotions and thoughts. Now when you, when you meditate, one of the great uh, simple practices and encouragements of it is just say, bring your mind into the present moment. Bring your mind into the present moment. Not into the future, what you should or could be or might be or ought to be, but just right now. Well, where's that? Where's right now? Yeah. So you close your eyes. Try to bring yourself into attention just like you're, like you're waiting, you might say. Just like you're poised, waiting. Listening. Ready. Something like that. Bring your mind to the present. Bring your mind to that point where it's actually not creating anything, but just listening, attentive. Right, present. 
Uh -huh. So that place, if your mind is like that, you realize you can't really say anything about yourself. You can't say what you should be or shouldn't be because of that particular moment. Who are you? Recognize that all that you, you sense yourself as being is what you've become, what you've never become, what you could become, what you might become, what you might not become. Yeah. It's all to do with the future, the past, supposition. In the present moment, who are you? Mm. Uh, mm. <laughs> don't know I know who I was I did this 20 years ago I did this 5 years ago and that's all the past isn't it and then well tomorrow I'm going here and there that's all the future that's all the, that's which has become has been and that's which will be when you come into the present there's nothing really that crystallizes or if it does you recognize it's taking you out of the present think, oh I'm uh, yeah I'm, I'm, so I'm in Taiping and I'm giving a talk yeah. but you're not in Taiping giving a talk where's Taiping? is the floor Taiping? it's just the floor it's just a notion we live in a world of notions and labels and descriptions where are you? Are you in Malaysia? Are you sure? Where is it? Which is, is this air Malaysia? Is the space Malaysia? Is the light Malaysia? Where is it? <laughs> it's just the world of being and becoming. And you recognize that all that is really a creation of the mind. A creation of the mind. The mind has to say something has to get going, has to get moving, has to get active, has to remember, has to bring up some ideas, has to calculate something, has to, has to get going, has to start becoming something, developing something. When the mind stops, the world disappears. This is where the world ends. <laughs> and you realize how much suffering there is in the world of being and becoming the world of tomorrows and yesterdays and the world of what I should be and shouldn't be even in the world of meditation how long have you been meditating? I've been meditating for five years have you got anywhere yet? oh well uh, not, not really um, Oh dear, I haven't become a very good meditator, I'm afraid. How long will it take you to become a good meditator? Oh, I don't know. I thought it would only take me a year or two. It's taken me five years. I still haven't become a good meditator. Maybe I'm doing the wrong kind of meditation. Yeah? Maybe I'll never become a good meditator. Maybe I've got some terrible bad karma from previous lives that mean my mind is perpetually going to be confused and blocked and addled and I'm going to end up being reborn as a pig <laughs> that's what I'm going to become because I can't meditate probably did something dreadful in a previous life and now I'm going to become I won't become a success I'm never going to become a stream enterer 
And I bet everybody else will, but I won't. So I look around the hall and I think, well, it looks like she's become a street mentor and he's well on the way, but not me. You know? So meditation, becoming a meditator is a lot of suffering. You know? So you see how becoming always creates an identity of what you are. And whatever you are, it's not good enough, is it? <laughs> Can anyone say, I've become something that's a complete success, I'm totally happy, there's no more development for me, I'm completely fulfilled. Yeah? Most of the time it's, well, yeah, I'm okay, I guess, you know, I've still got some problems and uh, body's not so good, and, you know, well, mine have got a few, few defilements here and there that come up, and, uh, you know, basically I'm just kind of second rate, really. <laughs> because you're looking in the wrong place. <laughs> you look into the world of becoming for fulfillment, you won't see it there. <laughs> so does that mean there's no such thing as development in practice, in the Dhamma practice? Yeah? That you're the same on day one as you are after 25 years. Then if it's like that, why bother? Why bother keep going with it if it doesn't develop? So yeah, there is a development real development is that your mind gets less and less affected by becoming. <laughs> less and less affected by that piece of mythology. Yeah. And what does become certain mind states to come into being. Mindfulness becomes stronger. Yeah. Conscience and concern become stronger calms become stronger. These things do become in accordance with karma. But you never become anything. <laughs> and the more you understand that, the more you let go of the idea of yourself and you start to develop skillful mind states. And who you are and what you are, you don't have to know. And when you've finally given up even that concern, that flood, that anxiety, then you certainly become something special. <laughs> but you don't talk about it like that. Just say, things, certain things are finished now. Yeah. Certain hindrances have stopped. But you don't say what you are because you, don't, you can't say what you are. It doesn't make sense. But you know what you're not and you know there's less suffering and you know that certain things are finished until someone like uh, someone who's really developed can say birth is finished that which needed to be done has been done there's nothing more to become there's no more becoming yeah? now in our, of course in our life we do have things that exist in time things we need to make have happen but you understand it's just things yeah? It's just things. And you don't build your heart upon it. When I first came to England, we still, we, and after a year or so we moved into a house in West Sussex, a large house in West Sussex. And it was quite derelict, it was quite bad shape. 
thought, well, we better spend some time working on this, build it up, clean it up, tidy it up, fix the roof, fix the plumbing, fix electricity, tidy the place up, and then we can, it'll be finished and we'll still be able to just sit and meditate then. So we worked on that. And it would, uh, well, we built the house, we fixed electricity, fixed the plumbing. Oh, it needs repainting. We can repaint that. Paint it, yeah. We fixed the house, we've done the painting. Well, it looks like the garden's really a mess. Tidy the gardens up. We need a new drive, actually. The drive is such a mess that people wreck their cars and they come in. So we put a new drive in. Well, actually, we do need a car ourselves, you know, to get to places. We'll get a car. Car's broken down. Once we fix the car, we'll get going. Then we'll come to this place where everything's sorted out. We'll be able to sit quietly and meditate. But actually, we do need a lot more support. So we better write a newsletter to encourage people to come. So we better learn the technology of writing newsletters. Once we've got the newsletter, we'll be finished. But we better upgrade the newsletter because that's not very attractive, doesn't interest people. Okay. Well, we develop, better develop a management body to really oversee all these things. We get a management body that everything will be sorted out. Got the management body. Management body is having problems. People are quarreling with each other. Never mind, we'll have a few meetings, quiet everything down there, everything will be fine. We'll meditate. This has been going on for 30 years. <laughs> and it never finishes. After a while, you get the point. <laughs> Sangsara basically does not work. But you just keep doing the things patiently, what needs to be done, what you can do, you do it patiently, but you have no sense of ever going to become finished with this. And after a while, the only thing that has to stop is the idea that things are going to stop. And then you find yourself feeling peaceful because you're not becoming anything or trying to become anything. You're just letting life pass through and you do what you can. And you see with that certain qualities develop parameters become, patience becomes, morality becomes, effort becomes. So you find that actually things have become, but out of dealing with the becoming world in a wise and skillful way. Yeah. So you do develop. Well, something develops. Yeah. But you know it's not self. It's the third kind of these, these floods or big corruptions that wells up and sweeps us along is very convincing. It's called the corruption or the flood of views, ditti, views. Now views mean we can form an abstract concept of something. We can say, that's pretty good, or we can say, that's not so good. We form a view about something, we form perspective on something. Yeah. And we could say, well, this person, you know, she's pretty lazy actually. Yeah. So, you want to get her to work, you've got to really kind of encourage her because she's quite lazy. And then, this person, he's pretty bright, he's pretty intelligent, so you want to get him to work on your management systems or your accounts. So, you form views of other people. Yeah and people form views about you. <laughs> and generally, most of these views have got some degree of truth in them. 
but the point is that they're never a complete truth. There's nobody whose sole characteristic is laziness. There's nobody whose sole characteristic is brightness. There's nobody whose sole characteristic is evil. There's nobody whose sole characteristic is good. Everybody's a mixture with three-dimensional beings. There's something very attractive about forming a view because it's nice and simple. And you can see the kind of things that happen through this process of forming views. You say, well, you know, what do the Nazis do? All Jews are a problem. Get rid of them. Wipe them out. Six million people. Or racial prejudice. Blacks are stupid. Blacks are ignorant. Blacks are uncouth. Blacks are violent. Blacks are stupid. Probably are some people who are stupid and violent and uncouth, but everybody's violent and stupid and uncouth at the time. (laughs) So you form a view like that and you can beat people up, put people in prison, treat people like dirt. A lot of views are based on religions, aren't they? Middle Ages, Christian religion, you could decide somebody was a heretic and burn them. In fact, you're helping them out by burning them. That's the beautiful twist you can get into with that particular religious view. I'm going to tie you up, torture you, and burn you at the stake in order to save your soul. Thank you, you say. How kind of you for making so much effort. Because you adopt the view that you have an eternal soul, your soul is going to be there for eternity, so you're going to die in hell, your soul's going to be in hell for eternity, frying up in hell, so a few moments of being burnt alive in a bonfire to get you out of that, you should be grateful, it's a good deal. So you form, form a religious view. It doesn't have to have much fact in it. What it does is it sets up a me and them, a good and a bad, and you start to know how to operate. Yeah? And it's very attractive to have that view because you can also use that view to blame people. So the problem is over there. The problem is over there. And we tend to refine things. Now, when I was uh, younger, it was the communists who were the world problem. All communism or everywhere, those countries that you painted red, everybody in those countries was a dyed-in-the-wall communist whose sole motive in life was to overturn the Western world and conquer us all. Yeah? You had a map and certain countries were red. They were countries, everybody was steeped in evil. Communism, nasty. And then the de- democracy was blue. And everybody in the democracy were just pure bright, wise, compassionate, fair deals for everyone, democracy is great. After a while he kind of rejigged that and sort of took them all down and found out, hey, them Russians, they're just like us, kind of they want to have happy lives, you know, they get angry, they get happy, they're loving, they're passionate, they enjoy music, they write novels, you know, they have views and opinions just like we do, pretty much the same. Now we're all friends. So, but you notice in that, that forming of view, you can blame, you create fear, and people use uh, these, these view tendencies, forming tendencies for political agendas. It gets all excited about something, all revved up about something, 
or angry about somebody else, yeah, and it, this view traps us. Tendency to have views traps us. Now, notice when you experience that, you don't have to look at big politics or religious uh, con- conflicts. Next time you have a domestic argument, yeah? next time you have a domestic argument, perhaps you don't have them in this country. Huh? Nobody ever quarrels over who's, who's going to do the washing up today, yeah? or what you th- the way you think your children should be brought up. Yeah? Differences of opinion. You think, no, this is right. This is right. This is the best. The other person says, no, no, no. No, that's old fashioned. This is the right. This is right. This is the best. No, no. No, this is right. I really know what I'm talking about. No, you don't. You just got that idea out of a book. I didn't. I looked at this very carefully. You never listened to me anyway. I listened to you yesterday. What do you mean I never listened to you? You're always talking about things. What do you mean I'm always talking about things? I work my butt off all day long to keep this house tidy. You never listen to me. You never do a thing. What's happened? <laughs> the energy has rushed up into our heads. We make these blind statements like never, you, and always, and should. And they're all not true. There's no such thing as never. There's no such thing as always. There's not even any such thing as you. It's just an opinion and a label and a description. And then you start to have views about yourself, judging yourself. The more you buy into that particular attitude, you start to have a view about yourself, an opinion about yourself. You either get conceited or you get depressed. And the Buddha summed it up in the Sutta of the Water Snake. He said, Bhikkhus, I do not see a single view the holding of which would not take you to sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. Even to hold on to views about the Dhamma is like holding a snake by the tail and it will whip round and bite you. This is the way the Buddha even talked about his own teachings, if you start to hold views about Dhamma. And of course, this is the problem for monks, or people who are really into Buddhism. Scholars quarrel over Buddhist views. Monks quarrel over views about Dhamma, about Vinaya, about meditation. They were doing at the time of the Buddha, they've been doing for 2,500 years, quarreling over views. My view is right, your view is wrong. You refute me if you can. Your teacher is no good. Your teacher doesn't know what he's talking about. The Buddha really said this. No, he didn't. That's a scholarly misinterpretation. But what happens when you, when you actually feel what happens? You get this kind of flush. Rushes up into your head. Your eyes start bulging out. Your face goes red. Your finger starts jabbing in the air. This is a madman. This is surely a madman. What happened to that calm, gentle, loving person who was there five minutes ago? The reasonable Buddhist who was there ten minutes ago disappeared under a flood of views. Of course, it isn't only Buddhists and monks who get everybody gets it. 
just notice what it, have, what, what it feels like. And then when you do have a view, because views are necessary, you can say, well, you know, my view is this. And you put it on the table. You say, well, let's look at that. I think you're a lousy driver. I think you shouldn't be allowed to drive. I think you're probably one of the worst drivers in the world. <laughs> so I got that view. And you say, okay, what makes you think that? Well, um, you know, you, you, um, you bashed into the gatepost with the car the other day. Okay. And um, my cousin says she's really frightened when you drive with, when she drives with you. Okay. Your cousin says that. Okay. And uh, you know, and you realise you have maybe a little bit of fact, a lot of it second-hand opinions, views, and your own way of judging things. How fast is too fast? Yeah. And you, when you come down to it, you recognise, well, everybody drives into the gatepost sooner or later. So we recognise, you know, when you actually put a view on the table and start to really investigate what it's based on, there's a little bit of fact there. A lot of it is just agitation, hearsay, fear, worry, trying to prove yourself, being jealous of somebody else, all kinds of other stuff comes on top of it. You clear it away and you say, okay, we all make mistakes. Okay, I have views. Okay, conflict over. Yeah? So you have to be honest about your views. It's not possible to not have a view. Because when I'm sitting here, I can only look one way. I can't see the world behind me. As far as I'm concerned, Taiping is this thing in front of me. It doesn't exist behind me. <laughs> But you have to, if you tell me, well, Fante, that's true, Taiping is in front of you. If you turn your head around, you'll see more of it. Oh, oh, you're right. It's not that I was wrong, it's just that I only got a bit of the truth. And as you know, that parable of the five blind men holding the elephant. One holds his tail, one holds his tusk, one holds his ear, one holds his leg. One holds his trunk. What's the elephant? One goes, well, elephant holding his tusk. So it's, like, it's a kind of like a very smooth, firm thing, like a, like a piece of, like an ornament of some kind, like a statue. One holding his tail says, no, elephant's kind of like a, like a rope. One holding his ear says, no, the elephant's like a, like a fan. I'm sure you get the point. It's true, and it's not true. So when we recognize that, we say, okay, that's the view. Check it out. And then you look at what's the emotion that goes along with that. What's the emotion? Because your thinking mind got these brilliant ideas, clear ideas, seems really clear and logical. Look at the emotion underneath it. The passion, the heat the irritation, the excitement, the annoyance, whatever it is, that's, that's, the view is not a problem, it's all that holding to the view that makes you blind to these underlying passions. If you can acknowledge them, 
and say, okay, I'm upset. Fine. That's the problem. It's not because you drive bad, it's just because I'm upset. <laughs> so the really the, the only the one that we can dispense with completely, we we definitely have to live with a sensory world. There is a sense of time and relative identity. You do have to have some kind of point of view to work with. But the one that you really don't need anything of is called ignorance, <laughs> which is the fourth. And this is the one you don't need to have any of at all. As soon as you can get rid of that, the better. Clear it out. And of course, it, it operates with all the other three. It's ignorance that stops you checking out the sense world. It's ignorance that stops you checking out becoming. It's ignorance that stops you checking out of view. It says, oh, this is, go along with this, don't investigate. So ignorance is sometimes the unwillingness to really look into what you're experiencing and check it out. Ignorance is that non-application of ehipasiko, non-application of wisdom, discernment. Ignorance is the not looking at cause and effect. Ignorance is the not looking at the difference between short-term boosts and long-term developments. Yeah? So every time you check, every time you check your mind, every single one of those times you check it, even if what you're seeing is fear or greed or worry, every time you check into that, you're actually cutting ignorance to some degree. So don't be ashamed or guilty about looking into your mind states. Yeah? The Buddha said it's a great benefit, a great benefit when you see what's wrong in yourself and you know it for that and you resolve not to follow it. So this is, we call this great development in this Dhamma discipline. <laughs> so I think this is really, really beautiful. Yeah. Because he's not saying, you know, you've got to be this, you've got to be that. He's saying, just recognize your own stupidity and stop doing it. That's what we call number one. <laughs> You know, even if you go, you can get intoxicated even with samadhi. You feel you're becoming a really good meditator and you get intoxicated with that, and then you get ignorant again. You develop a self-view about it. So, you know, all the time it's that possibility to cut the flood of ignorance. Yeah? And it begins, and we always come into it whenever we sit and meditate, whenever we sit sit still, look inwardly, what's flowing, what's flooding through. Bring your mindfulness to bear upon these emotions that come welling up. Be prepared to be someone who stands next to those emotions without fear, without judgment, without getting involved with them. And in that standing near, you'll recognize what it is that stands near, very near, is the Buddha's Dhamma is the way of clarity, the way of peace. Something that doesn't change, something that isn't bound up with death, birth and death. So in this way the Buddha himself could witness his own disease, his own pain, his own death. He could calmly witness the whole process of all that without feeling any degree of anxiety or anguish, sorrow or suffering. This is why he called it the deathless. So, 
that's the big one. <laughs> but right now, we have, I hope, many more years to keep doing our homework. So when the big examination comes, we can pass with flying colours. So I wish that for all of you. And uh, I'll stop the talk now and see if you have any questions you'd like to ask.